Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called Accept No Substitutes, Earthly Appetites, Heavenly Bread, and Human Wholeness. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, August the 2nd, 2009. In his film, The Girlfriend Experience, director Steven Soderbergh suggests that the need to love and be loved, to know and to be known, is so deeply embedded in human nature that we will do almost anything to get it. We'll even pay for it, whether to a psychotherapist, to a personal trainer like Chris, or to a $2,000 an hour escort like Chris's live-in girlfriend, Chelsea, who, by the way, is played by Sasha Gray, who in real life has starred in 167 porno films, according to the Internet Movie Database. In the film, Chelsea sells sex, of course, but what these very wealthy and deeply lonely men want is a so-called girlfriend experience. They want to take a peaceful drive on a lazy afternoon, eat a leisurely dinner at a fancy restaurant, and talk about all the things that you'd talk about in a so-called real relationship. How work went that day. Kids. The job. Chelsea pretends to offer genuine companionship, and they willingly fool themselves that they receive it. But things unravel when Chelsea and her clients drop their guard and transgress business boundaries to reveal themselves to each other as real human beings rather than as partners in a transaction. Since human love cannot be bought or sold, Chelsea and her clients seek something they can't get, and they forfeit their closest approximations in what they already have. We shouldn't be too harsh on Chelsea's clients who pay for sex in the hopes of getting love. In the Old Testament reading this week, after Israel anointed David as king, he crushed his enemies and conquered Jerusalem. He renovated the city and renamed it after himself, built elaborate public memorials, and constructed a palace for himself. He forged political treaties and economic agreements with Hiram, king of Tyre. David took more and more concubines for himself. He took more and more wives and fathered more and more children. When that wasn't enough, he took one more woman, Bathsheba, and murdered her husband, Uriah. But more and more was never enough to satisfy David's instincts and impulses. Money, sex, war, fame, and political power are only a few of the ways that we try to fulfill the deepest desires of human nature. The French mathematician Blaise Pascal compared our insatiable desires to an abyss that must be filled. What else does this craving and this helplessness proclaim, but that there was once in man a true happiness, 
of which all that now remains is the empty print and trace. This he tries in vain to fill with everything around him, seeking in things that are not there the help he cannot find in those that are. Though none can help, since this infinite abyss can be filled only with an infinite and immutable object. In other words, by God himself. Similarly, in his autobiography, Surprised by Joy, C.S. Lewis suggests that joy points beyond itself. He describes this as, quote, an unsatisfied desire, which is itself more desirable than any other satisfaction. I doubt whether anyone who has tasted it would ever, if both were in his power, exchange it for all the pleasures in the world. In his sermon, The Weight of Glory, he compares this deep longing to a desire for a far-off country. Like Pascal, Lewis believed that these natural longings could only be filled with a supernatural object. By God himself, who alone can fulfill them with his indwelling presence. One of the most famous and insightful sentences in all of Christian history comes from the first page of St. Augustine's Confessions. As the book unfolds, we learn that Augustine had extensive experiences with unfulfilled desire. And so, as if to give his conclusion beforehand, in the very first paragraph of the book, Augustine writes, Thou hast made us for thyself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. An insatiable craving, a psychic abyss, unsatisfied desire, and the deep longing for a faraway land. All these point to and find fulfillment in God alone, despite our many failed experiments with all sorts of substitutes. In John's Gospel, Jesus describes himself with a series of seven I Am sayings. It's likely that this is an intentional literary reference to God himself, who in Exodus chapter 3 verse 14 identifies himself to Moses as, quote, I am. Jesus compares himself to light in darkness, a gate to a safe pasture, a good shepherd who sacrifices himself for his sheep, the resurrection and the life who conquers death, and the true vine who fulfills Israel's destiny. And in the reading for this week, just as he compared himself to living water that quenches our thirst in John 4, Jesus identifies himself as the one who satisfies our deepest hungers. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. The ancient Hebrews ate miraculous manna from heaven in the desert, Exodus 16. But they, say Jesus, nevertheless died. He, in contrast, says that I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If a man eats this bread, he will live forever. This bread is my flesh, 
which I will give for the life of the world. If this sounds scandalous to our modern ears, we can console ourselves that it also did to the original audience 2,000 years ago. They dismissed Jesus' claim as a so-called hard saying. Who can accept this, they protested. And from that time on, says John's Gospel, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. John 6.66 the late-night comedians will have their laughs, but in Michael Jackson's tortured life and tragic death, in Sarah Palin's manic and meandering resignation speech, and in Governor Mark Sanford's stream of consciousness public confessions, we see warning flares of deep human longings. I have my own laundry list and thank God that I don't suffer from their media overexposure. But they remind me of St. Augustine's prayer just a few pages later in his Confessions. Augustine prays, Turn us, O God of hosts, show us thy countenance, and we shall be whole. For wherever the soul of man turns itself, unless toward thee, it is riveted upon sorrows, even though it is riveted upon things beautiful. And for further reflection, consider St. Irenaeus, who lived from 115 to 202. Irenaeus writes, The glory of God is man fully alive. For books this week, I review Karen Stabiner, The Empty Nest, 31 Parents Tell the Truth About Relationships, Love, and Freedom After the Kids Fly the Coop, New York, Hyperion, 2007, 302 pages. I have to admit that on several visits to our public library, I saw this book on display. One time I thumbed through it and on several occasions I almost checked it out, but I never did. Maybe it was fear, maybe denial, but I didn't look forward to losing the last of our three kids to college. A few weeks later, our youngest of three children graduated from high school, signaling that our own empty nest was imminent. And then, at the commencement exercises, voila, a good friend handed me the book as a graduation present. I was glad that she did, and I was glad that I read about the experiences of other parents. Standard wisdom suggests that two of the most stressful junctures of any marriage are when the first child arrives and when the last child leaves. <coughs> but as these parent authors show, in the best circumstances, the departure of your youngest child to college can be yet another thread in the rich tapestry of life. Bittersweet, yes, but also richly rewarding. It's a tremendous paradox, too. Is there any other job, asked Ellen Goodman, that defines success as making yourself unnecessary? Our goal as parents, after all, is to raise our kids to leave us. And if they don't, then in some measure we have failed. 
When our first two kids in college came home for the holidays, upon returning, upon their return trip to school, I would often ask them, does returning to college feel like you are leaving home or returning home? At some point, my sons transitioned, and leaving their family meant returning to their new home of college life and friends. That was hard to hear as a parent, maybe, but it was also just what you wanted to hear. Most of these essays are written by mothers, by my count, 24 of the 31 chapters. I appreciated the life wisdom of those parents who were further down the road and had gained more perspective and distance from the early traumas of emptying the nest. I especially appreciated reading how there are many different ways to experience healthy family dynamics. Stabiner does a good job of collecting stories from a widely different perspectives. Gay and straight, single dads and moms, Cuban and black parents, grandparents, families that appear more healthy and whole, and others that have experienced deep heartaches and tragedies. Reading these stories helped to demystify my fear of the unknown, and to help me realize that whatever losses the emptiness brings, there are also unique joys ahead. Karen Stabiner, The Empty Nest. For film this week, I review I've Loved You So Long from 2008. The film is from France. It takes all two hours of this film for the secrets that have defined Juliet to dribble out. In particular, why and how she disappeared from the family for 15 years, and why her parents utterly rejected her. But she's back, a withdrawn and silent version of her former self. Juliet moves in with the young family of her sister, Leah, who, despite the secrets both spoken and unspoken, tells Juliet, I'm glad that you're here. It's a very good idea. Leah was only a teenager when her sister left but her diaries show that she marked every single day that Juliet was gone. Her husband, Luke, two adopted toddlers from Vietnam, and Luke's aging father, who's silent from a stroke, all together provide a redemptive family context for Juliet's recovery. Family is important, says one of the several counselors with whom Juliet meets every month. You're lucky. Most people have nothing when they get out. Families are the context of so much pain, but in this film it also shows that families can be places of health and healing, no matter how horrific the past. I've loved you so long. The film is in French with English subtitles. For poetry this week, we have a contemporary poem by Brian Wren. The title, Good is the Flesh. The poem is an excerpt from a book by the same title, Good is the Flesh, Body, Soul, and Christian Faith, edited by Jean Denton.
Morehouse Publishing, 2005. Again, the title of the poem, Good is the Flesh, by Brian Wren. Good is the flesh that the word has become. Good is the birthing, the milk in the breast. Good is the feeding, caressing, and rest. Good is the body for knowing the world. Good is the flesh that the word has become. Good is the body for knowing the world, sensing the sunlight, the tug of the ground, feeling, perceiving within and around. Good is the body from cradle to grave. Good is the flesh that the word has become. Good is the body from cradle to grave, growing and aging, arousing, impaired, happy in clothing or lovingly bared. Good is the pleasure of God in our flesh. Good is the flesh that the word has become. Good is the pleasure of God in our flesh, longing in all as in Jesus to dwell, glad of embracing and tasting and smell. Good is the body for good and for God. Good is the flesh that the Word has become. The name of the poem, Good is the Flesh, by Brian Wren. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, August the 2nd, 2009. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.